Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our global webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very honored to have with me Roshi Chuan Halifax, the founder and abbot of, and head teacher of the Upaya Institute and Zen Center in Santa Fe. She received a PhD in medical anthropology in 1973 and has lectured on the subject of death and dying at many academic institutions and medical centers around the world. She was an honorary research fellow in medical ethnobotany at the Harvard University. She's director of the project Being and Dying and founder of the Upaya Prison Project that develops programs on meditation for prisoners and much more. And uh, you have already uh, uh, a year ago written a book that's called Standing at the Edge. And when I researched for this program, uh, it just uh, caught my attention right away, Standing at the Edge. Uh, that's really a phrase that uh, depicts so much uh, where we are all living right now, uh, more than uh, maybe we want to. And uh, if I may ask you, uh, in this Outstanding times that we are all living in. Uh, I just heard from you that you are living in quarantine right now, uh, and uh, the COVID crisis is is hitting globally. Uh, we are still in uh, our environmental crisis. We know um, that in US uh, it's a very tumultuous time, and also in Europe, a lot of things going on. We we are really in extraordinary times. You. As a Zen teacher, as a practitioner, as an abbot, uh, who has a perspective on um, how we really uh, can live our lives in a way that is maybe um, more on the edge than we usually um, are used to live. At the same time, uh, if I understand you right, the way you're talking about living at the edge has also these two sides, that there's a shadow side to all of that. So I would like to ask you, living at the edge, uh, when you wrote this book, uh, what uh, did you want to write about and how do you see that maybe we're all living at the edge right now globally as a global family? You know, I wrote this book, um, Tomas, after uh, many years of working as a social activist and um, sitting with dying people, working as a volunteer in the prison system, and um, interacting as well with uh, many, many people in uh, doing human rights work, um, clinicians, um, educators, politicians, uh, CEOs of corporations, um, where uh, individuals who were endeavoring to uh, foster uh, wholesomeness in the world um, often encountered great difficulties. And I, I have to uh, disclose that um, maybe I was my primary research subject. That is to say, my you know my own life, my own work. Um, provided uh, grist for the mill. It was um, uh, through my own difficulties that I began to recognize that even when you have uh, a, a very uh, 
uh, articulated or very clear motivation to be of service to others, um, to do the best that you can uh, to uh, cultivate well-being in the world, uh, you can harm yourself, harm others, harm the institution that you're working in, or harm the country that you're uh, endeavoring to serve. So um, that is, uh, uh, you know, it was a kind of wake-up call for me. And um, I think the wake-up call was amplified um, in a very uh, strong way um, when I saw how deeply uh, clinicians suffer. Um, you know, I saw this in my own life, but, uh, you know, I'm more interested in a way in other people than I am in my own situation. But uh, being with people in the end-of-life care field, um, I realized that, uh, ah, these are issues that um, also shine light into my life. And so I looked at um, uh, basically what are these uh basic human virtues that we're trying to actualize as social activists and in the world of service. What are these virtues that are really important? And um, these virtues that have, were brought to me by others and also that I discovered in my own life about the value, for example, of altruism. Altruism is, is, altruism is extremely important. Um, without altruism, you and I would not be alive. In other words, I don't know your mother and father. I have no idea, but I can say from mine, they were humans. They uh, were flawed, just like all all human beings are. It wasn't a, a perfect equation. But still, through their uh, kindness, their care, I survived infancy and survived childhood. And um, without altruism, um, in, in fact... Uh, no culture can exist. So that was um, a, a, a virtue that seemed incredibly important for me uh, to explore. And in the process of exploring it, uh, Tomas, um, I saw also that there was, as you noted, a, a shadow side to altruism. And um, this came about in part through, you know, many uh, healthcare providers disclosing to me that um, they were so stressed um, by uh, giving and giving and giving some more and not feeling that they had uh, the inner resources to give, that they were actually harming themselves. And I looked at, you know, international organizations like the United Nations and how they function in Haiti uh, after the huge earthquake in Haiti. And again, I saw, oh, you know, the motivation for serving uh, a population in crisis after a major catastrophe. Um, uh, of course, we want to bring resources into a country like that. But even doing that in the way that, for example, the Red Cross of the United Nations has done in, say, Haiti or in Nepal, um, ended up in uh, various ways disempowering the very people in the very country that they were endeavoring to serve. And so this notion of pathological altruism, which is documented in, in, in um, the world of <clears throat> social psychology, uh, became very interesting to me. 
you know, how we harm ourselves in our service to others, how um, we uh, can harm those whom we're endeavoring to serve through disempowering them <clears throat> or endeavoring to do something good. But um, in fact, uh, the action that you've engaged in uh, causes uh, distress to another. Or, as I said, harming the institution that you're working in and uh, uh, harming the institution or the country uh, that you're trying to help. So exploring pathological altruism, you know, became a kind of gateway um, where uh, I realized, well, you know, altruism is an edge state. It has these two valences in a general sense of the word. And that, um, in fact, even the most altruistic of individuals falls over the edge. What does that mean? What um, is it a terminal catastrophe? Or um, does falling over the edge, which is not uh, atypical for those who wish to serve others, um, is somehow making your way up to the high edge of altruism again, does it, in fact, build character? So this was an interesting exploration for me. And that's why I called um, these virtues that I uh, unfold in the book um, edge states. Because, you know, when you're on the high edge of altruism, yes, wonderful. You see the vast landscape of altruism, including pathological altruism. When you fall over the edge, you lose sight of healthy altruism. But what is the leveraging process that brings you um, out of the mire, out of the the grip of uh, pathological altruism. And what I learned through uh, research and also exploration with um, uh, many colleagues is the uh, leverage process, leveraging process is compassion. That um, our capacity as compassionate beings to actually see clearly um, what is uh, happening, having a metacognitive perspective, having a, a motivation which is uh, non-self-centered, um, having insight about the process that uh, one is in the grip of, and um, also uh, having the capacity um, to attend um, to uh, really allocate our attention, to give our attention fully to what is going on and to learn from it. You know, I looked at, um, I looked at altruism, uh, and then I uh, explored empathy in, in the book, which is, you know, I've said so often that a world without empathy is a world where we're really dead to each other. You know, our capacity to be in resonance, to be in connection with each other is really uh, uh, so important to um, be able to um, uh, expand our subjectivity, to include the experience of another, um, so that we're in uh, that kind of resonant relationship. And yet, when uh, empathy is not regulated, when um, it's out of control and we experience over-identification, say, with a person who's dying or with someone in the prison system who is on death row and who's just suffering from uh, extreme fear, or a refugee um, who has no options, 
um, who's being held at our, our border or a child um, who has been separated from her parents at our border. And this experience of vicarious suffering can make us sick. So I, you know, looked very deeply into the social psychology and neuroscience of empathy. And as a result of that, you know, really uh, realized how important empathy is, but that empathy needs to be grounded um, in uh, a stable attention. And it also um, involves the experience of meta-awareness, that we realize, yes, I'm in resonance with this person who's suffering, or this being that's suffering, but I'm not over-identified. May I ask you uh, two things about uh, both states that you're talking about, about altruism and empathy, because uh, one thing that really caught my attention is, uh, you said, uh, also the shadow side of both is character building. And I really would like to uh, ask you more, what do you mean when you say this is character building? And with both states, you point to something that I am just curious also what this means. You said meta-awareness, which is something uh, obviously related to awareness, but more than that. So why is this engagement with the shadow sides of both altruism, empathy, character building, and why seems to be at least one of the keys that you're pointing to meta-awareness? What is this about? So when I say it's character building, it's not, uh, for example, that we seek to be pathologically altruistic or we seek to be over-identified. It's more that we fall over the edge. Mm -hmm. And we can stay, if you will, on the hard rocks of our failure for the rest of our life and um, be in the the grip of that suffering for forever. Or... Um, uh, meta-awareness that is uh, stepping outside of our experience um, in a way where we're able to observe what's going on and to apply insight to it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the truth of impermanence, realizing, whoa, I am completely burned out. Why? We, many reasons could uh, uh, contribute to being burned out or to being uh, pathologically altruistic or to uh, uh, being empathically distressed of experiencing too much suffering of the patients whom we're serving. Um, uh, but those difficulties themselves in the right circumstances become a kind of mindfulness bell. Mm -hmm. They're saying, oh, my body, my conscience is in conflict, or I'm worn out and completely exhausted, or I'm in the grip of grief, but it's not even my grief, it's someone else's grief. So there's all sorts of content coming up from the pre-conscious level, from the somat our somatic experience that tells us, I'm not doing well right now. And meta-awareness allows us to identify that experience and to begin to evaluate it and to work that edge so that um, we get more depth of field about what's going on in our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the, the truth is, is our encounter with suffering doesn't mean that that suffering goes on forever necessarily. 
but it very uh, often means that we can learn from our experience and develop insight and, and wisdom out of the difficulties that we encounter. So that's what I mean. I'd say don't seek to go over the edge. Don't worry. You'll go. And But um, there's always a gift to be found within the difficulties that you're encountering. Mm-hmm. And meta-awareness or metacognition allows us to look at um, our experience um, in, in a more objective way. Of course, I'm very aware that you are a Buddhist teacher and that your wisdom comes also uh, from uh, your Buddhist uh, understanding of reality. And I see your uh, very uh, positive relationship to the engagement in the world and, uh, and, and, and values like altruism and empathy. Uh, but it seems that um, what you're pointing to, and maybe this is also what you mean with meta-awareness, is that all these positive uh, um, values, like altruism, like empathy, like respect, uh, like engagement, uh, also can be something that we identify with and blindly go with and uh, are kind of uh, uh, locked into something that basically, uh, in that sense, pull, uh, pushes us over the edge. And as we are in, 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 the, in the time where many of us are, feel that we have more than ever the necessity to engage because uh, our world is burning, burning down. If you look to California, literally burning down. Uh, there, there are so many things where we are needed, but there's also something needed uh, where we let go of all that at the same time. Uh, where, where, where we don't let go of uh, our empathy, of our love, of our engagement, uh, of also our, of, of our pain with the world, but there's something, uh, maybe this is what you're pointing to when you call meta-awareness, where we are not uh, entangled uh, by this. Uh, is this the, uh, the thing you're pointing to, or I'm just, just trying to, to, to understand what this character building, what this learning is that you're pointing us here to? So I think what you're saying is very much aligned with um, uh, some of what I'm saying in the book. And, uh, uh, you know, I make this interesting distinction between smart and wise. Mm -hmm. You know, and I ask, you know, what is it to be a wise person in the world today? And I'm not talking about, you know, special, special. There are many smart people. Um, They make great financial investments. Uh, They uh, create companies that are extraordinarily successful. Uh, They're head of corporations, head of hospitals. They're heads of government. Some of them are smart, some of them not so. And uh, But um, being smart is different from being wise. What is it to be a wise person? And, you know, again, we're going back to this notion of meta-awareness. You know, it's having insight about certain things. For example, insight about the truth of impermanence. That um, a year ago, uh, we had not even any sense that the whole world would blow up around this pandemic. That it would have political 
uh, financial, economic, financial implications, implications for work style, um, cultural implications that are just extraordinary, that it would be affecting governments and it would be affecting uh, common individuals like you and me. This is just like uh, you think about a year ago, you know, whole stadia uh, around the world where games would be playing are now empty, uh, whether it's the barber shop or whether it's a political rally. So, you know, we're in a, a world that we never anticipated uncertainty and the truth of impermanence. Moreover, um, we see that uh, all the talk about climate change, it's just, um, you know, it seemed like talk, unless you were a climate refugee, um, you know, fleeing from the floods of hurricanes and typhoons or from extreme heat. So the privileged of us um, don't feel like we have to flee. Now, the fires consuming our forests in California, Oregon, Washington, the forests, uh, the fires in Siberia, the atmosphere, the smoke, um, where it's just off the charts, causing uh, potentially genetic mutations that can be passed on through generations. I mean, we're we're in a you know in a very powerful and extreme situation, almost like a rite of passage for the entire globe. And we're waking up to the importance of, you know, issues related to how to be a healthy altruist, how to be in resonance with the experience of others, how to manifest fundamental integrity, how to actually um, in, uh, be in relationship um, with even our enemies those who are harming others, which is fundamentally uh, uh, relationships, which are fundamentally respectful, not more disrespect, as we see the politicians in my country engaging in egregious disrespect, mm-hmm. and how to be socially engaged now in a way that is healthy and transformative, where we're not morally disengaged. Mm-hmm. So this is you know, a powerful time, and you know as terrible as um, uh, the situation is, we're also seeing, I think, a really important surge of goodness, particularly in the younger generation. And I feel like Greta Thunberg's voice uh, is a a voice that is um, we're all listening to. Um, We're also seeing a surge among elders like myself, um, you know, we're, we're sending our voices because we know that we have participated in creating the problems and now it's our responsibility to untangle this tangle to the extent that we're able. We're also seeing um, reaching across uh, religious differences and uh, ethnic and national differences, even as racism is uh, happening and, uh, uh, you know, so visible in our country at this time. So, you know, I feel, uh, you know, my friend Rebecca, Rebecca Solnit has written a beautiful book called Hope in the Dark. I feel very hopeful about the future in, in certain ways. In other ways, I'm, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to climb out of this situation. Mm-hmm. But I also have the, you know, uh, what I, I'm seeing is, if you will, um, uh, exactly what Rebecca Solnit is talking about. I feel there is hope in the darkness of what we're going through at this time. And that it is in, in, uh, an imperative 
from my point of view, that um, we uh, build character uh, within ourselves and create the context where character, character <clears throat> can be uh, strengthened in order to meet the great challenges of today. What do you mean when you say it's imperative to build character? What is this that, that you find so important in this? Why is this an important ingredient to the answer that we need? And the last thing we need are weak, wishy-washy, unethical, compromised, disrespectful, um, morally depraved people okay. at a time when we're in such a political and environmental uh, flex point. You know, you, we need strong, caring, compassionate people at this time. And, you know, character is strengthened by meeting adversity, mm. and we are in adversity at this time. But are you not, uh, coming back to your book, exactly making the point that all this, being compassionate, uh, being engaged, uh, being respectful, has its shadow side, and we have to be aware of it. Uh, don't you say, yes, we need all of that, but we also need... Uh, some distance to this, uh, or do I misinterpret your meta perspective? It seems that, you, that you're fully embracing all these positive uh, character buildings, but you're also saying uh, there's a danger point, be also aware of the danger point, you need more than just being engaged. Well, let me, <clears throat> let me Thomas, let me make a, a one point for you. And that is that I think that um, putting compassion into that list is uh, not appropriate. You know, the last third of my book is a deep analysis of compassion. There's no downside to it. It's a win-win situation. The person who receives compassion benefits. The person who gives compassion benefits. And if you observe compassion, you, uh, you benefit. So, you know, you're morally uplifted. And that's one of the points in the book, um, that of how powerful uh, compassion is. And in fact, last evening, I was at the Mind and Life Europe meeting with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and he kept coming back again and again to the importance of compassion in our lives and in our world today. Mm-hmm. And I make that point again and again in the book, that compassion is a win-win, but Altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement all have within them shadow elements. And one of the important points in the book is that the context for transforming the toxic element, for example, of altruism, that the landscape which will transform that toxic element is the landscape of compassion and so forth uh, in terms of each of the edge states that I described. And I think, you know, we haven't spoken about, the, you know, sort of the deep analysis I've done of compassion. So it might make more sense, you know, to our listeners, um, you know, they can read the book and get a, get a picture of my perspective on that. And they definitely read your book. Let me ask, uh, why, why is compassion different? You make really the point, 
the compassion does not have this downside. Uh, what makes it so different to all of the other very positive character treatment treats? Uh, what's the di what's the difference with compassion? Well, you know, I actually didn't realize that uh, compassion was so distinguished. Um, in you know, until the neuroscience research coming out of the Keck Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, also the Max Planck Institute work that they have done in mapping the neural substrates of compassion as distinct from mapping the neural substrates and the physiological reactions associated with empathy, for example. Mm -hmm. And so this has been, you know, uh, in Buddhism, Clearly, compassion, which is one of the Brahma Viharas, one of the boundless abodes, which is looked on as a fundamental and inherent capacity, which often is uh, covered up um, through our conditioning, but which we can ultimately access in the right uh, situations. But that um, uh, compassion, uh, again, from the point of view of Buddhism, is a uh, virtue that cannot be violated, if you will, cannot be uh, sullied. What happens is that compassion is often conflated with empathy. And so that the experience of empathy, which involves identification with the other person's suffering, can cause us a lot of suffering and cause us uh, vicarious trauma. So, you know, this is a this is a more nuanced part of our conversation, but I'm saying that from the point of view of Buddhism and from the point of view of contemporary neuroscience and social psychology, compassion is inviolable. The reason why I'm asking, because um, what you're describing, uh, all the downsides of this virtue, I, I think um, many of us, many of, of the listeners to this program are very much aware of. And it seems uh, that uh, we need an answer uh, where we need some inner, how should I say, training, maybe it is the wisdom training that you, that you are talking about, to be able to lift these virtues in a way that is not harmful to ourselves and not harmful to others. And it seems that from your own research and also the research uh, on neuroscience, uh, there is something that is very much also in the context of Buddhist teaching where compassion holds something for us, allows us uh, to relate to all these virtues in a different way. Uh, how so? What is your own experience uh, where you say this is something that allows us to be, you said, a wiser person uh, than uh, we would be without? So, yeah, yesterday evening, um, uh, again, listening to the, the Dalai Lama during the Mind and Life Europe uh, meeting on Zoom, um, His Holiness made the point, and of course, uh, people who practice uh, Buddhism are, are well aware of this, you know, the, it's mind training, it's mental training, mm -hmm. it's embodied mental training. So, you know, it's learning to actually downregulate, to get grounded, to be able to allocate our attention to either our own subjectivity or to our, an external experience in a way that allows us to be very concentrated and present. 
that allows us to um, allocate our attention for more than a mind moment, but um, to really settle into uh, clarity, into an experience of high resolution. And um, so this is, in, you know, in Buddhism, it's called shamatha. Uh, this is, or, or shine. Um, it, it is uh, a focused attention meditation, which is, a, you know, a first step. The second step is um, related to insight. You know, it's like uh, from a base of a clarity, of groundedness, of concentration, being able to investigate what our experience is on a moment-by-moment basis. And insight is really essential. You know, if you don't have insight about the truth of impermanence, um, you're, you're really going to get twisted up. You're going to be very unhappy because everything is changing all the time. We're in a stage right now of, you know, uh, history of radical uncertainty. We actually have always been there in radical uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Everything was always changing. We never knew really what was going to happen in the next moment. Yes, you can build uh, a, a kind of uh, play the probability game, but you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, on 9-11, the people who were in those airplanes hitting the trade towers, did not know what was going to happen. Last year, we did not know that the Earth, uh, our globe, um, would uh, find itself, you know, not only on fire, but this pandemic sweeping uh, across uh, borders. And uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying. So, you know, you just don't know. So you learn in practice to live with the truth of impermanence. Hmm. And, you know, it's not all bad. There's surprises, many uh, that are very positive. My teacher, Glassman Roshi, really emphasized the experience of not knowing. What is it to have beginner's mind? And beginner's mind, from the point of view of our practice, is that capacity to really... uh drop into this moment and to be uh, open, not separate from, not turning away from what is arising in this very moment. So that's what wisdom is. You know, uh, Suzuki Roshi said, wisdom is a ready mind. That's that kind of nimbleness, openness. Okay, whoa, this is not good. But one um, learns to dance with difficulties with more grace through time. Yeah. Uh, this may again sound uh, uh, naive uh, and not wise, <laughs> uh, uh, but why? Uh, the exposure to impermanence, why, why is this something that allows me to deal with reality in a different way? Uh, uh, the exposure to not knowing why does this allow me uh, to develop wisdom? Uh, if I may just ask this naive <laughs> uh, n- n- question, I, 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 I understand the emphasis, and I, I know Oshi uh, Glassman emphasizing this, uh, but why is this something that really uh, changes our relationship to reality uh, when we deeply realize which is true, that everything is impermanent. Well, for one thing, um, and this is, <clears throat> the, you know, the most simple, is that um, if I come to this experience of this moment, knowing that everything could change 
in the next moment, I, my heart could stop. My blood vessels could break open. Mm-hmm. In other words, like uh, Plato said, you know, the bedrock of our spiritual awakening is really coming to terms with the truth of our mortality. And the Buddha also taught this. So this is, a, you know, this profound experience of being able to be really present for whatever is happening in this moment and not turning away from whatever is arising, including sorrow, including anguish. And this is the second uh, tenet that uh, Glass and Roshi articulated, the tenet of bearing witness. And it's it, that tenet is, it's not, bearing witness doesn't mean by, being a bystander. It actually means uh, being one with whatever is arising. And from not knowing and bearing witness then arises compassionate action. One reason why I'm asking is because, of course, many people who are very engaged and are just feeling deeply with the world uh, see in spiritual teachings uh, like this uh, uh, sometimes something like a spiritual bypassing. Basically, if I let go of that, if I see the impermanence of everything and everything bad can go, uh, I, I, I'm not attached to things and I, I, I don't feel with the world. But it seems that your point is the opposite. And uh, it seems that uh, caring for the world, uh, caring for uh, everything that, that, that we need in, needs something that allows us to bear witness in a different way. And the place you come from is not in order to... Uh, not deeply feel the reality and also the difficulties that we, but to be able to respond in a different way. Do I understand you right here? I think it's a beautiful way to put it, Thomas. Again, you know, we're saying not to not feel the truth of suffering, but it's also to have insight about the truth of suffering. And so, you know, you're living in this wiser landscape than being in the grip of the truth of suffering. Like, for example, um, you know, some years ago, I took a bad fall and fractured my trochanter and my femur. It was really painful. And, um, it, you know, required surgery and you know, it was really a mess. And I think the only thing that got me through was um, even as I was going through all this pain, uh, associated particularly with my time in the emergency room and then, you know, being uh, lifted off a gurney onto a x-ray table and so forth. It's really horrible with my my broken bones. Um, I just, I could remember, uh, I, I, I'm fully in the pain on one hand, but also it's impermanent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having that insight um, made it possible for me not to be traumatized by the pain. I was in the experience of it, but it wasn't sticking. Mm-hmm. The pain lasted this long, and then it was over. I knew it was be over. So it's you know it has to do with you really uh, cultivating a landscape of wisdom based on again being open, not knowing beginner's mind and bearing witness this, you know, really connecting with things just as they are 
both beauty and suffering. And then from that arises wisdom and also wise action. Yeah. And listening to you, this edge uh, that uh, that your point you seems to become very It's, it stands out in, 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 in the way you talk about it. And maybe it's a foolish thing to, to ask a Zen teacher about something that uh, does not in the end fall to nothingness and not knowing. But it seems, but it seems that there's something uh, where the wisdom comes from that is deeply nourishing, inspiring, uh, uplifting, uh, uh, not empty. In, in an empty sense, but uh, empty in a very full sense. And also uh, seeing you and, uh, and seeing your facial expression, uh, there, there, there's, there's, there's something where, uh, if I may say so, the wisdom comes from. Uh, and how, how is that? And, and how, how is this something that uh, really uh, basically uh, focusing on the impermanence, focusing on that in the end we don't know. And also, as uh, Roger Glassman uh, really uh, brought to us the capacity to bear witness uh, uh, in, 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 in a deep sense. Why is this something that on one hand, uh, as you're emphasizing, is empty, is not knowing, but is uh, also deeply inspiring? So, I, you know, my, my teacher was Roger Glassman, And um, also my teacher's been my failures. Mm. And one of the expressions we have in Zen is continuous failure. Um, uh, you know, I don't think many of us have learned that much from our successes. Um, it, you know, in terms of who we really are, where our learning comes from, comes, mm. it comes from the places where we have been broken. And I would say uh, that is something that Glassman Roshi, dear Bernie, uh, he, he, you know, he manifested it in how he lived his life. Um, it was this kind of, you know, sort of genuine humility, a kind of humor, grandmother's heart and fierceness. And it really came from uh, all the difficulties that he made for himself, not that just were made for him, that he made for himself, that he learned from. And then that learning he gave back to all of us. That's uh, very powerful. And uh, I, I just know that Bernie Glassman just also expressed this as a person, also kind of the humor that he had. And the, I mean, the big heartedness that he just ended the room. Part of why I'm asking again is, Is the brokenness of our time, if I may name it so, also something that we uh, can maybe see the same lessons in that? That the brokenness, and I think many people w would agree that in many dimensions, what we are seeing right now, uh, so many dimensions are broken. And uh, th th there's a lot of depression around this uh, because there's a lot of, of not knowing but this not knowing does not have the, this, this positive connotation that you give it it has more a depressive we just don't know how to get out of this mess uh, at the same time it seems you're saying there's a teaching in this you know I was um, 
looking at what we're going through right now in a certain way as a global rite of passage uh-huh. where um, we are in, uh, there are three phases that the ethnologist Arnold Van Hennep described in rites of passage, the first one being separation, and we sure are in that now. And the second phase is the liminal phase or the threshold, and we are being thrashed apart. Uh, socially, economically, environmentally. And what are we, what are we learning? And the lessons are hard. They're hard won and, um, they're difficult for us to digest. But, um, the third phase of a rite of passage is how do we reincorporate or incorporate these learnings and into, um, what we bring to our earth and to, um, our societies. So, you know, I think we're in the threshold right now, that liminal stage of betwixt and between. I don't know what uh, is waiting for us down the road. I, I really have no idea. I just know that I have to stay present with what is unfolding, including um, the fear that comes up in me or sometimes a pulse of futility. And I have to work that and learn from it and learn how to transform those uh, uh, traps within my psychology or within other psychology that can disable us. Mm. And um, even in moments of feeling uh, disabled, as though uh, my own heart cannot go forward, um, I look at that, you know, say, ah, what am I learning now? What am I learning now? Because that has within it um, the equation of not just my own self-improvement, but, you know, how can I share what I'm learning now with others that will be a benefit? No, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, again, again, my apology, uh, if I ask uh, from the other way, you said uh, you have to stay present. And I completely understand it. But let me ask me, what allows you to stay present? Because many of us uh, just feel, uh, I don't, I don't have it right now. It's too much. Uh, I want to get out of here. Uh, if I may ask you, what allows you to stay present in all of this that you're describing? Well, I think staying present also means when you say to yourself or experience, I want to get out of here, I want to bypass, that's staying present to also your own avoidant behavior. So, you know, you don't want to avoid being avoidant. Is to, you know, if I feel brokenhearted, I don't want to just intentionally just cheer myself up. Again, I want to see what what is the gold here? What is the treasure what do I need to learn about this situation? So it's really actualizing this uh, quality of inquiry, of curiosity, of investigation. Mm-hmm. Joanne, we, we are also at the end of our time, and I think this curiosity and also this inquiry, uh, but also the spirit in, in the way you, uh, you're, you, you're bringing this, is something that is just very needed in this time. And I think it has something to do with uh, having the courage to, to stand at the edge in the way you're describing it. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Tomas.